All right, for the first time, legendary singer and songwriter, Grammy Hall of Famer Aaron Neville tells his personal story of overcoming poverty, racism, addiction, and loss through faith, family, and music in his new book, Tell It Like It Is My Story. Aaron's first number one hit, Tell It Like It Is, was released in 1966. In the mid-1970s, he formed the Neville Brothers, now known as the First Family of New Orleans, and they released more than a dozen influential albums. He had four platinum albums, three number one songs, numerous film and television appearances, and was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 2014. His triple platinum duets with Linda Ronstadt, including the Grammy Award-winning hit, I Don't Know Much, show Showcase the softer side of his voice and the smoky, hot, funky soul of the Neville brothers cemented his legacy as an R&B legend. But few people know the challenging road Aaron took to fame. And he joins us to tell us that story. Aaron, welcome in. Thank you. New Orleans is world-renowned for its cuisine, its unique dialects, its annual celebrations and festivals, the biggest being Mardi Gras, but most notably the music. What a great place to grow up and be inspired. Well, I couldn't think of growing up nowhere else. <laughs> right? Yeah. About it, all the places I've been, you know, New Orleans was the right spot to be in. Yeah, no question. No question at all. You know, um, you really take a deep dive into your childhood, the good, the bad, and the ugly, but it really is mm-hmm. how it made you the person you are today, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I wrote a song called To Make Me Who I Am. It took who I was and where I came from to make me who I am. Yeah, there's no question. The album with the same name. Yeah, yeah. And you've said the projects were great. If we were poor, we didn't know it because you can't miss what you never had. There you go. Well, like, and my mom and dad made sure that we didn't never want anything. And we had a like a great aunt we called the Auntie Cat because she took care of all the cats in the neighborhood and her neighborhood. She said they called them they were. God's voiceless children was used to, you know, take us, it was me and Charles at the time, the three boys, he'd take us to the apartment stores and buy clothes for us and just take us on the outing, you know? So, anyway, New Orleans, Calio Project was like a paradise to us. Yeah, you know, and and that's very, it comes through, through each chapter of this book. And there's so many books out there where I can tell it may not be in the artist's voice, but this book is all that. It's in your words, and I can tell it's coming from your soul. First thing, Beth Adelman, who helped me write it, she did it through Zoom. She said, Aaron, I want the book to be in your voice, not mine. And that's what we did. Yeah, it comes through. Um, from the early uh, New Orleans originators, such as Louis Armstrong and jazz, Mahalia Jackson and gospel, to distinctive and influential R&B shouters like Professor Longhair, Fats Domino. Who really inspired you? I know one was your brother Art, maybe Nat King Cole, George Jones. Who were the big inspirations for you in music? Well, you said my brother Art Trace and uh, Nat, my mom had all the Nat King Cole records in the house. And uh, I used to walk around the house with a calm, singing Mona Lisa or whatever. But I was Nat. And then they had Clyde McFadder, one of my favorites. And uh, my brother worked at a record shop. So he brought on records by Sonny Till and the Oreos, the, the Clovers, uh, the Platters, uh, all old doo-wop groups. And he had a doo-wop group itself in the Calio Project. And they would run me away. So get away from me, kid, when I come try to sing with them. And so one day they said I could hold a note. And they... It showed me how to do all the harmonies and all. 
Yeah, I was going to say doo-wop really is deep into your blood a little bit. I mean, I mean, I, I know you've done albums on it. You, 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 <laughs> that, that's something that is really fun for you, isn't it? Oh, no doubt. It's, it's part of my makeup, you know? Like I used to say, all the songs should end with one of those doo-wop high note things or something. <laughs> uh, I'm glad uh, I have my musical history of all the, the Nat King Coles and Pookie Hudson's and the Flamingos, the Moon Glows. Oh, yeah. Clyde McFadden. And you know what? It's so it's so wild because, I mean, obviously a different era back then when you were listening to music and so much of it, you know, the way kids and, and people discover music today is electronically. It's on your phone. Um, but, you know, there you were throwing a record on or listening to the radio for the best of the best yeah. to learn of what you loved. Yeah, I used to like to put the record on and put the, the needle on it. Yeah. Yeah. Little to make the song come in. All that was part of the ritual, you know. It was. It was. In fact, I was going to say my daughter is 18 years old, and she has a record player in her room, and she buys the newest oh, wow. music because uh, vinyl is back. I mean, which is remarkable to yeah, me. Like, yeah. and you know, my kids know how to put a needle on a record and how that works. And I'm, I'm telling you, like, there's not a lot of. There, it might be a generation or two lost that really understand how amazing that music experience was. Oh, yeah, it was the greatest. You know, you and your brothers have made a name for yourselves in New Orleans rhythm and blues circles by the mid-1950s. You are and were very close to your brothers. Oh, yeah, no doubt. We were like four fingers that turned into a fifth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the Hawkettes yeah. was a band you formed in high school. You know, you took over as the leader. Then that same year, arrested for car theft, did some time. <laughs> and what you said you did was you sung and you fought when you were doing that time, right? Oh, yeah. That's, that's part of my life, part of growing up. You know, going from neighborhood to neighborhood and meeting other, you know, me and my friend Melvin, we used to go and, you know, look for other girls and the guys didn't like it. So we wound up fighting and beating somebody up or something, you know. That's amazing. And we got a, a nickname that's called, called Moore Face and Melvin. <laughs> and the guys, they thought they was dissing me by calling me Moorface. I loved it. Oh, yeah, Moorface. And later I used to say, I was friends with a couple of the wrestlers, like Bet the Hitman Hart, Cactus Jack, and um, Randy Savage, Macho Man. And I always say, if I was in the wrestling business, my my moniker would be Moleface. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. I love that it was singing and fighting, though. And I know for your 16th birthday, you gave yourself a present. That has lasted all your life, and that's that tattoo that is so distinctive on oh, your yeah. face. Yeah, yeah. And my daddy came home and made me scrub it with Brillo pad, oh, not and soap. Oh my god! And the skin came off, and not tattoo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess so. I guess so. Well, and and you know, in the book, I mean, you know, there's so much success in in your life, but you talk candidly about the struggles with drugs, alcohol, heroin. At 16, you were earning money, performing, and you had the money for it, but it was a struggle for a very long time, and faith and love got you through it, didn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, when you first start, it's like, you know, fun and games, you know, until they turn on you, makes think he's going to be your friend, but he really don't like you. You know, he's going right. to turn on you and make your life a living hell. And the way you tell this story in this book, 
you know, and you and you call it tell it like it is. You mentioned the song. There was a song of the same name released in '66, and that song must have some special meaning to you. I mean, it was on Billboard's R&B chart for five weeks in '67 on the Hot 100, right behind "I'm a Believer" by the Monkees. It sold over a million copies, awarded a gold disc. It has a lot of special meaning, doesn't it? It does. I mean, it called out my uh, my singing style and. Um, I was heard, but at, at the time, Frank Sinatra was trying to get in touch with me to do something with me. But my manager at the time, Joe Jones, he, uh, he didn't like that idea, so he nixed it and wouldn't let, didn't let me know anything about it until it was too late. But, uh, you know, make people say, well, man, you're not bitter, but, you know, not getting it good for your record. And that uh, Frank Sinatra thing, I said, well, no. I feel like this. God knew what he was doing at, at that time. I don't think I'd have been ready. Mm-hmm. You know? So here I am still alive. I didn't make the 27 Club, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, what point did you realize you could make it in the business? Was it a specific record, a record label, a concert, a collaboration, the audience? Like, what made you feel inside that you were on your way? When we first got with the Neville Brothers in 1977, after we did the Wild Chapter 2 of the album with our uncle, Big Chief Jolly, and the, the Neville Brothers did get our first uh, album in 1978 on Capitol Records. Yeah. And it felt good, you know. And uh, So after we did that, I was able to get off of the, the, the jobs I had, like the riverfront work, you know, unloading cargo ships and all that, mm-hmm. and just stick to singing. But uh, the Neville Brothers and Bill Graham, who's a great manager, he opened a lot of doors for us and pointed us in different directions and hooked us up with the Rolling Stones, the Grateful Dead, yeah, all of Santana, Huey Lewis, you know. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Well, we're talking to music legend Aaron Neville. His new book is Tell It Like It Is My Story, and there's more with Aaron next on 720 WGN. We're talking to Aaron Neville. His new book is Tell It Like It Is My Story. You had clear success, Aaron, as a solo artist and with your brothers. Talk a little bit about Linda Ronstadt. I know you guys met at a Neville Brothers concert, but it it took a while for you guys to find a project to work together on. Well, we met in 1984 at the World's Fair in New Orleans. Me and my brother were playing at Pete, Pete Fountain's Club, and she was there with Nelson Riddle at the amphitheater. And she came to the show afterwards, and somebody told me she was in the audience. So I dedicated a song to her and called up on stage. And she told the press there that she could never do stuff in prompt like that without the rehearsal. But she wasn't going to say no to Aaron Neville. Wow. And I asked for an autograph. She said, to Aaron, love, I'll sing with you anytime, any place, anywhere, and any key. The next year, myself and Alan Toussaint had an organization called New Orleans Artists Against Hunger and Homelessness, and we invited Linda down to do that concert with us. She came down, and that was the first chance we actually had a chance to be in the studio and sing something together. We sang the Ave Maria in harmony. And our manager, Peter Astor, said, hey, y'all should do a record. And the rest is history. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Don't Know Much won you and Linda the 1990 Grammy Award for Best Pop Performance by a Duo or Group with Vocal and was also nominated for Song of the Year. Pretty special partnership and an equally special friendship, wasn't it? 
isn't it? Oh, yeah, we're still, we're still in contact. She's a dear friend. You know, I have much respect and love for her. You know, I also know you write poetry, and the book I Am Song came out of that, and so did an album from poems you typed up in your smartphone, right? Yeah. That's how I write, and I don't use stuff on paper. So, I mean, if you take time to look for a pencil on the paper, the thought be gone, you know, somebody else will get it. So you have to strike while the iron is hot, so I can just jot it down on my phone. Yeah, apparently. And, but I mean, that, that, you know, I mean, obviously you're a songwriter too, but like, when did the actual poetry start for you? Like, when were you, when were you inspired to just write like that? Oh, I started a long time ago. Uh, One of the first things that I I wrote was uh, my wife, Joel, at the time, she had a chance to go on a cruise. Her sister worked for uh, this roofing company that gave them a cruise, and she said, Well, this might be my only chance to go on a cruise. I said, Well, you go it on. So I'm home with the kids, and one morning, uh, one night, I'm looking out the window, and the moon was extra big and yellow, and I started writing Yellow Moon. (laughs) Yeah. So I have to be inspired. I can't sit down and write nothing. I have to, you know, it has to come to me. Wow. And what do you like more? Do you like more songwriting or, or, or poetry? Or, is a, or does poetry really give you some peace that you might not have? Well, it, it, it all starts off with poetry. Yeah, it does. You know, I write, I write it poetry, maybe with a, with a rhythm in mind, but, you know, only I know the rhythm. So it's true. It's... I'd have to portray it to somebody else when we get it ready to record it. And you know, it's wild. Success doesn't always mean rich and famous. There's different definitions of success, isn't there? Especially for you on so many levels. No doubt. Oh, yeah. To be healthy and happy is the most important. Do you miss being on the road? You know, I miss the audience, but I don't miss uh, the, the traveling and all that. Uh, I used to always say I wish they'd come up with something like Star Trek where they could beam me from my house and gig without... <laughs> But I was going through the airport agony and all that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a, it, it, it appears to the fans like it's just such a glamorous life, but it it can take a toll, right? I mean, it, it does. Yeah, you fly into town, you go to a hotel, check in. If, if there's a, a restaurant, you get some breakfast or not, you have to wait. Then a little later, you go on the sound check. You come back, you do the gig, try to get some sleep. And you're up early the next morning, and that same night, and getting on the bus. And that part is not fun. It is not. It is not. But I love, it, love the audience. Well, it's given you time to complete this book, too. I, I have to imagine when writing it that it's pretty cathartic because, I mean, you're really walking through your whole life and kind of reliving everything. It's almost like a little bit of therapy mixed in with a lot of joy, maybe some sadness, but what comes out of it is really what I said in the beginning. I, I know it's coming from your soul, and it is your life story. Yeah, which was a roller coaster. Yeah, yeah. Of emotions, you know. And I was writing it, and when I, I read it about five times, I love it, you know. And uh, each time I get to a certain spot, I get emotional, you know. Like when I was writing it, I had to take my time and I say, hold up a minute, let me get past this, this moment, you know. Well, it's a great, great, great book. Music legend Aaron Neville. So many great stories from his soul and and from his new book, Tell It Like It Is My Story. Aaron, thank you so much for um, for joining us. Uh, great book. It's a pleasure.
Thank you, sir.